Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host Dave Homewood and this is episode 6 with uh, Noel Cruz. Hi Noel. Hi Dave, again. <laughs> <laughs> and this week we're, uh, we're planning to cover your time in Yubon in Thailand, which sounds very interesting. Yes it was. I, uh, I separated this out from the last talk um, because it was quite a different scenario rather than trying to mix them all up. Now what I've got to try and do of course is put uh, it all together as one piece because for the two and a quarter years that I was up in that area, I spent eight months in Lubon, Thailand, right. starting, you know, as I think I mentioned, within the first month of getting there. Yeah. Um, so this eight months is spread over two and a half years, so there were big holes, and then I'd get back and pick up what was going on, and each time I went back, things had changed a bit more, so right. what I want to try and do is condense it down so we don't drag on for another hour and a half, because <laughs> I'm sure people are probably getting bored with me by now. <laughs> Never. Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I first got up there in November of 1965, but I finally left there in October 67, so that's really a, sort of two years, effectively. Right. Um, and this eight months was spent there. Initially, it was in two-month uh, rotates, and then the last couple were only one-month rotates. Um, they cut it back from two months to one back one month, I think, to stop all the... <clears throat> the, the embryo alcoholism which was occurring up there. Okay. Because, as I might have mentioned, the uh, the local... Uh, town was not the most salubrious place to, to go to. You fairly rarely visited there. Uh, but the Americans, have they developed their operation up there, had this huge offices uh, mess arrangement there right. with a 24-hour bar, a 24-hour kitchen, and completely blacked out uh, uh, sleeping facilities so okay. you could sleep 24 hours. Right. You know? And it was possible to get totally disorientated as to what time of the year it was <laughs> if you spent any time over there, which I did. In my first tour, because uh, my first tour went uh, over the Christmas 1965, yep. and we had a few days off over Christmas, so I just went and spent it at the American Club. And uh, probably the best medal that I've got from my entire career up there, I'll call it a medal, I was presented with this little button which said, avoid hangovers, stay drunk. <laughs> <laughs> this was presented by a couple of American friends who, who, who saw me staggering from from the bed to the bar to the kitchen and back again, you can order whatever sort of beer. So it was quite quite interesting place. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, I should talk a bit more about what the hell was going on up there before I get into how drunk I used to get. <laughs> um, the the U-Bon uh, arrangement had been set up, well, obviously, long before I got there, but also even before the Vietnam conflict uh, started. Right. Australia was a signatory to a thing called the Southeast Asia Treaty Organisation, which is one of those international arrangements which is long defunct. Yeah. And uh, the deal was that we would provide um, a presence up in Ubon, Thailand, which is something I might mention, right over the right-hand side of, uh, of the Thai continent or Thai country, yeah. about 10 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes flying time from both the Laotian and the Cambodian border, sort of in the bottom right-hand corner of Thailand, if you like. Okay. <clears throat> and the deal was to provide at least two aircraft on an alert status there as air defence of that corner of Thailand because 
even back in those days, the Thais didn't get on too well with the Laotians yeah. or the Cambodians, and all of those countries I still think don't get on too well with each other. Right. <laughs> so, right. And that goes back 2,000 years, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah. We were just a small part of it. And there was a radar station there run by Thais, which was a, a very similar to the sort of radars that we used to have in Australia. Um, capable, but nothing spectacular by today's standards. And the deal was that uh, we we kept six aeroplanes and eight pilots there. Okay. Two of the aeroplanes were on a constant five-minute alert status during the daytime because it was like a day fighter. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the interesting situation up there was that it was fairly logical that Butterworth Air Base only being an hour and a half flying time down in the Malay Peninsula was the obvious place to support them from. But the Malays, or the Malaysians, weren't signatories to the Southeast Asia Treaty Organisation. Oh. And they had let the Australian government know, in no uncertain terms, that the, the, the Thai base was not to be supported from Malaya. Okay. Yeah, tricky. So how the hell do you do it? Because there's no way you're going to ferry a sabre all the way from Australia to Thailand. And we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the personnel up there fell into two distinct uh, areas. The guys who were the, the, the aviation side of it, the, the technical guys and the pilots, of course, all came from Butterworth. The ground support people, the cooks and the bottle washers and the priests even, they came from Australia and that was easy. They flew up on a C-130 and I think they were there for about a four or five month rotation. Whereas the the aviation side was rotated, as I mentioned, a bit more regularly. So of course the question was, how do you you support your jets? There was no big maintenance facility up there, so anytime there's anything fundamentally wrong with the airplane, you have to fly it home quickly to fix it. And home was Butterworth. So you may recall I mentioned last time that there was no... um, colour markings on our sabres at all, no squadron markings, because right. it would be very embarrassing to suddenly have a 77 squadron sabre appear in Thailand, yes. or vice versa, yes. or a 79 squadron sabre appear back in uh, in uh, in Butterworth. <coughs> so they had to swap the aeroplanes over by, um, <coughs> shall we say, a, a clandestine method, which is rather interesting, and I wasn't aware of this when I first got there. And when, when I was first told about it, I thought, oh, you've got to be joking, this has got to be so bloody obvious, but it's, it turned out it wasn't. <laughs> what used to happen to change an aeroplane and a pilot, obviously simultaneously over, yeah. um, starting from Butterworth, you, we, we, we utilised the, the, the Canberra squad, number two squad, and the Canberra bombers would ostensibly do a navigation exercise from Butterworth to Bangkok and back again. Yeah. Overhead Bangkok, do a U-turn, come home again. And that was okay, it was all internationally certified, they weren't landing, they were just doing navigation exercise. Yeah. Now, as the Canberra taxied out, if you look very carefully, you would see a sabre tacked in behind it. No radio. And the Canberra would take off, and the, and the sabre would be tucked on his wing, and away they'd head off to Bangkok. <laughs> in the meantime, as the Canberra approached Bangkok, one of the so-called alert aircraft, which it wasn't, it was the one being changed over, would be scrambled from Ubon yep. to intercept, a practice intercept on the Canberra bomber. Yep. And this would occur somewhere over the top of Bangkok at about 40,000 feet. And of course, the uh, the intercepting airplane would slide onto the left wing of the camera, and the other airplane on the right wing would pull away, take his call sign, and head to Yubon. And they'd swap at 40,000 feet. The camera would then do a U turn and take the other saber back home again. <laughs> and this was done, <coughs> oh, once every every month, every six weeks. That's bloody brilliant. They'd rotate airplanes over here. <laughs> and uh, I did two or three of these. Uh, ideally, of course, you, you did this intercept in visual condition so you could see the camera because yeah. once, you, once you get about 40,000 feet with still the full drop tanks on the saber, it doesn't want to climb too fast. Yeah. 
and I can call one that I did. Uh, I was actually the pilot coming out of out of Ubon, and uh, I was radar vectored onto the Canberra, and we were on top of a decaying thunderstorm. It wasn't turbulent or anything like that, but we were way on the top of it. It was all this misty clouds, like flying in fog, yeah. and I couldn't see the goddamn Canberra. <laughs> and the guy's saying, like, he's half a mile. Can you see him? And, and, and I'm saying, no, 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 keep going. And so we actually overshot Butterworth because the camera stayed here heading for a bit. And the next thing I hear, with, uh, without any call signs at all, is, I've got to go. <laughs> I mean, the guy on the wing has to depart now. The fuel state's saying, I've got, you know, I've got to depart. Yeah. And just as he said that, I looked straight up, and I'm about 3,000 feet directly underneath this camera bomber right. in the hay. So I, so I just said, go. So immediately, the, the camera pilot who was attuned to this um, realized that we'd swapped. Yeah. He saw the other guy peel away, yeah. couldn't see me, so he started the big turn and headed for home. And I could not get up to him, so I fo formated underneath him, about 3,000 feet directly <laughs> below this camera for about the next half an hour, trying to slowly struggle up to his height as the uh, burned off fuel. Yeah. Finally popped up on his wing about half an hour out of <laughs> 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 My little jet, for some reason, just didn't want to go that high. <laughs> However, no one seemed to notice. The height finding equipment on those radars probably wasn't the best of the lot. Yeah. So that's the way we used to swap them over all the time. Skipping ahead a little bit, um, I can't remember exactly what it was, sometime in the middle of all my comings and goings there, there was a major incident with, a, uh, with an F4 yeah. operating out of there. And he, uh, he was departing on a night operation and he had uh, eight 750-pound bombs underneath him, which was a pretty heavy load. And again, the, the, the F-4 um, has boundary layer control for landing and takeoff, because ostensibly it was also supposed to be a carrier-based aircraft, right? Yes, yes. When you lower the flaps on the F-4, automatically this blown, these blowers would suck the air off the, uh, off the engine and blow, it, blow the wing, so the boundary layer control. And this knocked off a, a fair percentage of airspeed absolutely necessary for takeoff when you're carrying a huge load like that. Well, apparently this guy had forgot to select his flaps. Ah. Well, and uh, something happened uh, within the system. He started the takeoff roll and he had a fire light. And he, uh, he, he aborted the takeoff and stopped in the middle of the runway, halfway down the runway. Fortunately, over under heavy braking, he veered off the center line, so he's in the, the right-hand side, if you like. Yeah. We were all coming home from the movies that night. We saw this jet just suddenly parked there, and we saw um, a whole bunch of red lights detach themselves from the American camp, which was on the other side, and start heading towards this airplane. Obviously, it was a problem with it. Yeah. All the red flashing lights then stopped halfway out and turned and went back again because um, they'd met the pilots who were running like hell <laughs> towards them. And we all looked at each other and thought, uh oh, what's going on here? Now we had all these little bunkers with sandbags all around them in case of enemy attacks. So we all sort of huddled down in these and all of a sudden there's this almighty bang. The probably the loudest bang I've ever heard. Yeah. As all these bombs went off. Now theoretically bombs aren't supposed to go off when they're when they're a fire. You know, they're supposed to be more stable. I don't know what triggered it. But this um, F four and all its bombs were vaporized. Wow. Literally vaporized and it blew a hole in the runway about 100 meters, it's a big wide runway, it's about 200, 250 meters wide. Yeah. There was about a 100 meter hole in this concrete runway. Wow. It closed one half, as I say, it was very fortunate he moved off to one side. Yeah. And of course, there's a full scale operations going on here and here's this hole right in the middle of the runway. So we had to put you know, little witch's hat cones around it <laughs> and we were just operating off the other side. A bit like a small cave on a, on a road in New Zealand. Yeah. They couldn't stop. <laughs> You'd never hear of such a thing. Anyway, I'm, so I'm skipping ahead a bit. For about the next week, the controller 
in the tower, and there was mostly American controllers, but we always had an Australian up there too, because they sort of understood our local operations, yes. and he could chime in. And after about a week of, of every time you came back, the guy would say, oh, Roger, you're, you're clear to make your approach and be cautious. There is a hole on the right-hand side of the runway, approximately five million days. And eventually we said, we know about the hole. Stop telling us about the goddamn hole. So we stopped talking about the hole yeah. <clears throat> until we did one of these changeovers. And the new guy arrived with the call sign of the airplane that only departed an hour beforehand, you see? Yeah. Yeah. So the uh, American just says, you're clear land. And the Australian control said, tell me about the hole. But he knows about the hole. He just took off, tell him about the hole. <laughs> and so the ex did not quite understand what was going on here. And they never pinged it either. That these airplanes were just magically changing. If they'd all taken yeah. photos of the tail numbers, they would have realized. Yeah, we yeah. used quadrant call signs, not the tail number. Now, Falcon was our primary number call sign. So, yeah, we somehow got away with it all that time. <laughs> and it never caused a diplomatic incident. The C-130s could stage through. Um, and pick up things and all, but they weren't, we weren't allowed to swap the jets. Anyway, we did it quite successfully for the whole time I was there. I'm not quite sure what happened after two squadrons went to Vietnam. We didn't have cameras. I'm sure we borrowed a, probably an RAF airplane or something to format on. Finding something to format on is probably not the big problem at all. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, we had this squadron up there, or half a squadron really, <clears throat> and we had a whole bunch of tin huts only about 100 yards from the edge of the runway, which means it was extremely no noisy. And they were okay. The, probably the best one was the officer's mess bar, which was all lined with bamboo and raffia matting in the ceiling and all. You spent a lot of time there because going to town was not good for multiple reasons. You could The sorts of diseases you could pick up there. Yeah. Um, on the other side of the airfield, uh, the Americans, when I got there, the Americans only just started to arrive. Uh, the war in Vietnam had kicked off, what, in Vietnam, 1962, was it, I think? Yeah. But it was fairly low-key to begin with. And there was a squadron there, uh, the 431st TAC Fighter Squadron, um, who were only there what they called TDY, temporary duty, okay. um, yep. for six months. So they hadn't been there long when I got there. And all the airplanes were painted white, you know, no camouflage, nothing like that. They were all F4Cs, I think, or even the earlier model, because they, they were fairly um, ill-equipped for what they were sent there for. Yeah. And indeed, just to, popped in them head too, it was so, so early days was this, that there was a roadway outside of the... Uh, which went around our base and then crossed the middle of the runway with all the bullet carts and the trishaws and the sandblows and so forth. <laughs> and there were boom gates on the runway <laughs> with, with lights and, and so forth, act like a railway boom gate. And they were activated by the guy in the tower. So whenever an airplane wanted to land or take off, he'd lower the boom gates and the traffic would stop. Yeah. And then there was nothing to see the bullet carts going across the runway with an F4 taxiing past behind them. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, this is quaint. <laughs> The locals apparently knew really well to not to try and run the, the boom gates or you'd wear a, a, a jet aircraft in your right ear. So it seemed to work. But after the Americans started to get established there, because they started expanding rapidly and building huge concrete ramps and expanding their facilities and all, they built a road right around the airfield and just cut this out for okay. logical reasons. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway, the 431st TAC Fighter Squadron was there, and a lot of these guys um, had experience on Sabres. Some of them were Korean vets. Right. And these were really good guys to play with because they, uh, they understood what Sabre was about and so forth. And they were all pretty relaxed about the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, and they, uh, they went home uh, fairly early in my rotations up there. And then the 433rd TAC Fighter Squadron was the next one to arrive. Um, and they came with their camoed airplanes and a lot more sophisticated gear. And there was another one turned up, I can't remember the name of it now, who specialised in night fighter operations. So the whole thing was called the 8th TAC Fighter, Corp, fighter Wing. And they had two, oh, they must have had about 50 or so jets there, the huge ramps. And it got a very, very busy airbase. And we were kind of 
tucked into a corner. <coughs> Our role didn't change much. Um, we, in those early days anyway, we were still there as the air defence of the base. Initially it was just for the ties. And that became logical to be air defence of, of the whole base, including the Americans, because possibly the, the incidence of an incursion may increase yeah. because all these Americans were there. You know? yeah. um, so we, we still held this, this air defence alert. So we had two aeroplanes parked down in a, what they call an operational readiness pad at the end of the runway, next to this old tin hut with these cranky old air conditioners to try and keep you sane. And, uh, and there you sat all day. You're on a five-minute alert, which means from the time the little clackety-clack phone rang from the uh, from the, the radar station, you had five minutes to be airborne. Normally, you could do it in a fraction less than that, because you sit, literally sit there in, the, in a, on a chair or lie on this couch with your G-suit and your May West on, which is terribly uncomfortable reading a book or whatever. Yes. Yeah. So you didn't go completely crazy, unlike uh, the days of Butterworth. They would scramble you once a day. Probably 99% of the time was a practice, right. and it could be any time, so it sort of kept you sharp. So you actually got airborne, and uh, you would then go out and just intercept something, or even be split apart and intercept each other, just to practice the radar controller's own expertise as yes. well. Yep. So you always knew that it was possible, and every once in a while you get a hot scramble. <coughs> I had two, pardon me, <coughs> one against a uh, uh, Curtis Commando, Commando C-47, and another one against one of those Fairchild Packet type aeroplanes, a lot of those old aeroplanes wandering around there. Yeah. And they were there doing all sorts of odd things. Um, some of them just misplaced flight plans, a few Air America aeroplanes floating around that pretended that, that they weren't there, but they still got sprung by us. Yeah. But having been sprung, then the word would filter through, oh, <coughs> yeah, don't touch him. And so it would all fly away again. So I never actually got to shoot at anyone, yeah. but there's always sort of stuff going on. And um, we, we Basically, that's what we were there for. The other four aircraft, if they were all serviceable, would go and perform the normal squadron-type training exercises for the, for the whole thing. And then little by little, it started to develop into more interesting stuff. Um, we got you know, involved quite a lot, especially with the 431st Squadron, flying uh, against the F-4s. And also, there was another place called Udon, which is very, sounds very similar to Ubon, mm. believe it or not, uh, about... Oh, 30 minutes flying time north of us, up near the the, uh, the Vietnam, sorry, the uh, Laotian border there. And the Americans had installed an air defence alert pair of aircraft there too. But they used F-102s, okay, which were a specialised air defence you know, radar type aeroplane. Again, no guns or missiles. Or Every once in a while, uh, we'd get scrambled together and go and meet each other and have a play. Yeah. And I found that was really interesting. In fact, they, the F-102 was not as good as the Mirage. Um, right. It uh, had about the same shape, delta wing, but not as not as powerful, or the power weight ratio wasn't as good. So we found them pretty easy meat. <laughs> <laughs> I can remember really upsetting one F one hundred two pilot. We got in this little air combat engagement, and he hooked in this really hard turn and just stopped dead in the air. And I put my gun sight on him and just tracked him for a bit. But what he did, uh, because we were carrying the alert pair, of course, were hot guns and hot missiles the whole time. Yeah. And uh, I got a photograph of him, but we had this thing called a camera test button, which you could lean forward and press you know, with your finger uh, down between your legs. And he was such a stable sight picture that I could actually do this. So I slowly went forward against my nursery wheel and pressed the camera test button and took this wonderful film of my gun sight reticle on this F-102. Came back and got some still photographs made off this by the, the camera guy at the base yeah. and sent a copy of this up to the F-102 detachment at Ubon via the United States internal mail thing. Took, took a few days, and the next thing, I got a phone call. <laughs> a phone call's in Thailand. 
uh, you know, quite rare. It's sort of it's, it's a, that, that, that side of thing, but it wasn't through the normal system. It was through the American system. They set up this yeah. this phone patchy system somehow yeah. from this guy who was the F one hundred two pilot who said, "How did you take that picture?" I said, "Well, with the, with the gun camera." But you have loaded hot guns. I said, "Yeah," which means you squeeze the trigger. Oh, oh, yeah, I see what you're saying, I said. So it's okay, our, our triggers have got two pressures. The first pressure runs the guns, and the second pressure fires, runs the camera, rather, the second pressure fires the guns. And he freaked out. <laughs> <laughs> I convinced him he was only a grand's worth of pressure away from being blown out of the sky. <laughs> oh, God damn, yeah, no, you're bloody arsey stuff. I didn't, I didn't, I've never told him to this day. Maybe you'll hear this. <laughs> I'm actually pushing the camera test button. <laughs> Yeah. Had a lot of fun with him because <laughs> we couldn't run our cameras, you know, via the trigger, obviously, because just a slight little bump and away you go. Yeah, you yeah. Shoot at someone. Yeah. So we flew against 102s a little bit. Uh, they were easy to meet. The F4 though was the most interesting airplane because it was the at the top of the line American fighter of its day. And when we got there with the 431st guys, who had some um, saber experience, some of them Korean uh, saber pilots and all. And we did quite a lot of playing with them because they really enjoyed it. You know, they'd, they'd seek us out, in yeah. fact, or they'd, they'd come back from whatever they were doing over the north and actually call the radar station and say, hey, would you send up those RCs in there, save us sort of thing. <laughs> so, of course, they'd scramble us and up we go, we'd dogfight these guys. And I was pleasantly surprised to find, again, how well our little jet handled them because okay. they, it was in that era where the Americans had decided that air, close air combat was a thing of the past. You know, it was all missiles and... Yeah. and you know, long-range radar and all that sort of stuff. So the F-4, as I think I mentioned previously, didn't have an internally mounted gun. Yeah. It had uh, sidewinders and it had disparate missiles, which are very effective when you stand off a bit. But as for a dogfighter, it was not a very good airplane at all. And I can remember <coughs> having some hassles with these guys, and there'd be two of us against four of them, and we'd play you know, four kills and they wouldn't lay a glove on us as we hooked around the corner and so forth. And I remember this one particular guy. We used to be in the common frequencies, so we could actually well, I'll rephrase that. We had our own frequency, and the Yanks used to come across and listen for us, right. right, as we were being intercepted on them. I remember one of them telling me once, he said, yeah, we listen on your frequency, but you guys talk so fast in that funny accent, we can't understand a goddamn thing you're saying anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember I got behind this one particular uh, F4 one day, I wasn't quite tracking him, and he decided just to go for the moon, so he just unloaded, pulled it vertical, and opened up both afterburners and just powered away. And I just pulled up and followed him all up the hill. And as he, he I, I dropped back a little bit, but you know, not much. Yeah. And as he sort of ran out of steam and pulled off over the top, I just cut the corner on the inside, and there I was tracking him. And over the radio comes this voice saying, "What the hell, goddamn thing, engine you got in that airplane, boy?" Because <laughs> <laughs> he was expecting us to have a normal F eighty six. Yeah, yeah. And of course we didn't. We had uh, a much more powerful thing. In fact, there's a there's a video floating around on YouTube. Uh, I meant to mention this. Um, I'll come back to it a little later on. A guy, a U-Bon F4 driver, was talking about these days up there on this YouTube interview. And he actually said, oh, yeah, he said the Aussies were up there, we used to play with them, and they had afterburners. And so they all believe that we had afterburners, all sorts of things, because yeah. it's just so much more powerful. Yeah. And another day, again, the 431st, uh, this guy was, was a Sabre pilot, a uh, fairly old, older guy, and he had a new guy in the back seat, the gib, as they called them, the guy in the back. Yeah. And I remember tracking him one day, and I was having such an easy job of it, I pulled to the inside and did a barrel roll around him and came back and tracked him again. Got back afterwards, and this, the, 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 the front seat pilot came to me, he was laughing. He said, man, he said, you should have heard my gib. <laughs> he said, he was a new guy in the back seat, and he said, 
you're sitting there and you're saying, he's tracking us, he's tracking us, and oh my god, he's doing a barrel roll race. <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't believe it. And they actually thought this was high sport to see just how well we could outmaneuver them. Yeah. Uh, the flip side, of course, is we learned a lot about, you know, how to, how to outmaneuver them, yeah. talking to these guys. And that stood us in, in good stead later on, um, once, once they, they left. But before I get ahead of myself, I should uh, talk about another couple since I mentioned that video and brought to mind something else, completely aside from all this air combat stuff. Sure, yeah. Um, when I was there for the first tour, <clears throat> I was there over Christmas, as I said, and got presented with my little button. But the Americans, as usual, whenever war they get in, they have what they call their USO shows. Oh, and, yes, yeah. uh, you know, all the, the top entertainers come around and entertain the troops. And we had, uh, we're told that Bob Hope was coming to Ubon. Right. And he's bringing this bird called Carol Baker, who was Miss USA, blonde bombshell type thing, which was the, the eye candy for the troops and all the rest of it. Yep. And they were, they were going to arrive uh, at a certain time, so we scrambled our alert pair to go and escort them in, just so the Americans would realise that we're here too. Yeah, yeah. And so we did, we just formatted on the C-130 and it arrived overhead and that was the end of it. I hadn't thought much more about it until someone directed me to another YouTube video just about a month ago. Um, maybe someone heard these and you are heading this way. And if anyone wants to go onto YouTube and dial in Bob Hope U-Bond 1965 or 7, 65, um, and here's a picture of the C-130. It's, the whole video is only about a minute long. Yeah. Um, uh, and we're about the first 30 seconds, but there's a, a photograph of the C-130 flying over airfield with a sabre on each wing, and then it cuts to a picture taken out the cockpit window of the sabre on the left wing. Oh, right. That was me. That's you. Because <laughs> wow. I can remember parking there, and this Carol Baker sort of with a headset on, saying, oh, it's nice that you guys are flying with us, and then she sort of pulled her head back and said, hang on, we're going to take a picture. Well, apparently it turns out that the, the, the co-pilot or something like that snapped a photograph out, and there's a sabre parked on the left wing of Bob Hope's C-130. Right. And you'll see that for a whole three seconds on the YouTube, and that was me, just to wow. prove I was there. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, if you'd like, uh, this and the, and the other video about the air combat stuff there, I'll actually I'll flick a link and you can put it on the I'll on put the, it onto the site, on yeah. The site yeah, yeah, so people can have a look at it. That's Neither of them are very long, but they're quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so that was, uh, that was Christmas in uh, 1965 up there with, with them. Where was I now? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, the other thing that we used to have fun doing was because they were doing so many changeovers with um, their pilots and so forth up there. And when the 31st squadron left and the 433rd arrived, we had this little trick with the Sabre where you could do a leaflet drop. I say leaflet. The trick was you got a toilet roll and you put a rubber band around it and then with a hacksaw blade you would cut, making sure underneath the blade, you'd cut through from the outside to the centre. So the rubber band now held together. I don't know what, 120, 300 yeah. individual leaves. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. You could stack at least three or four of these in each speed brake well. <clears throat> the trick was, there's a little lip on the bottom of the speed brakes, and you always park the same with the speed brakes open, so when you pre-flooded, you can look at the hydraulic uh, uh, accumulators and so forth buried inside there. Yeah. You'd stand these things on the bottom of the, of the speed brake, and then select the switch to close before you start. So as, as soon as the engine started and the hydraulic pressure started to build up, the brakes would close very slowly under the low pressure and that's why you wouldn't drop these things prematurely. Sure. Once closed, of course, you didn't touch them again. Yeah. And of course, depending on what your target was, you would then overfly it at 300 plus knots and pop the speed brakes out. And all these toilet rolls would hit the 300 odd airflow, the rubber bands weren't strong enough, and instant, 2,000 sheets of toilet paper would rain <laughs> down. Well, you can imagine four aircraft, each with eight of these, you know, it was our version of, the, of, of bombs. Yeah. And so we welcomed the 433rd TAC Fighter Squadron to Ubon, Thailand, 
as they got out of their C-130s, all the troops it was, and having a bit of a parade, a welcoming parade, we gave them a fly-past and rained toilet paper all over them. <laughs> Welcome to you, Bond, from the Royal Australian Air Force. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> That's all good giving, yeah. yeah. Um, also, about that time, the, uh, the United States Air Force flew a squadron of A-4s. They were going to another airfield, because about five airfields in Thailand. These guys were going to attack Lee, I think it was, which was further over to the uh, to the west of us. And this was a squadron of A4s, and they come from, um, I think, Clark Air Force Base across South Vietnam, across the bottom of Laos, and in. And these 431st guys that we got on pretty well with said, oh, they're going out to meet them, and sort of shepherd them in, and say, hi, welcome to Thailand. Why don't you guys intercept them and, you know, and have a bit of fun too? So again, we scrambled the, uh, the alert pair for their practice scramble, just to go out and meet the squadron of A4s with a few F4s tangled up with them. What we did not know, because they're on a different frequency, which is the F4 guys knew we were coming, but the A4 guys didn't. As we appeared, they started screaming, oh my God, MiGs, we're in deep shit. And bloody A4s went in all directions. Oh no. <laughs> it didn't take them long to recognize that we weren't MiGs. And so no one actually jettisoned tanks or anything like yeah, that. Yeah. But they were completely unarmed. They had all the big fairy tanks all the rest of it. But we kind of disrupted their arrival somewhat. And again, the 431st guys afterwards told us, he said, oh, that was a hoot, you know, you really stirred them up, guys. <laughs> so these are the greatest load of stirrers I've ever come across. Yeah. Anyway, they went home and they were placed with some more serious people because by now the war is starting to pick up a little bit yeah. and getting a whole lot more serious about uh, what they were doing, really. Um, and about, I think it was about the second time I was there, I got to know one of the 433rd guys whose name was Ed Collins. I should just just also mention that all these F4 drivers, when they got there, they were doing 100 missions over before they were rotated out, which is a lot, right. you know, because it was getting fairly nasty over North Vietnam, what they were doing there. And anyway, I got to, sorry. What, what, what were they actually doing? Were they doing ground Bombing. stroke? Ground stroke. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the F4 was, uh, um, even though it was ostensibly got the F in front of a fighter, it was basically a strike aircraft. It yeah. was designed to strike or as an interceptor and they were dropping bombs and they were carrying you know, eight 750 pound bombs under the wings each time when they were heading off to North Vietnam ostensibly to interdict the supply lines of the south and this is something I'll touch on a little later because it became very frustrating yeah. it wasn't an all-out war against the north in those days all they were trying to do was interdict the supply lines of stuff getting to the south right. uh -huh. um, that's why Australia was only ever involved in the south side of it we weren't allowed to go to the north side because that was regarded as you know more, more oil war as opposed to defending the South. A lot of political rhetoric and a lot of political confusion. All every speech contradicted the previous one as to what we're really doing there yeah. and how we're doing it. It was quite a it was quite a mess, really. Yeah. Um, you made me lose my train of thought. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Anyway, I got to fly with this uh, this guy named Ed Collins. He. Uh, uh, he and I got to know each other because we used to frequent each other's messes and bars all the time. And uh, I suggested I would mind having a fly of an F4. And he said, well, we do the odd test flight, you know, engine changes or whatever. Yeah. Um, because I actually caused an engine change in one of the months. That's another story I'll get to in a moment. <laughs> we, uh, and he said, well, I'll get in touch with you. So sure, about a week or so later, he, he rang me by the little internal thing and said, no, well, come on down here. I've got a back seat for you. So I trucked on down. The boss said, yeah, go for it. Trucked on down. Just in my white, or my, sorry, my, my green cotton flight suit. Yep. And climbed in the back of this F4. I haven't been 
briefed on a few knobs, dials and switches, um, which all look pretty similar. It was the same vintage as our airplane, so all the, all the speedos, everything similar. Yeah. And away we went. Uh, we were just going for a test flight somewhere locally, you know, I thought, and I have a bit of a fly with this airplane. So we, uh, he does the spectacular takeoff, which it really was, because we were light, we had no bombs, so we were lightly loaded. Yeah. We only, we still had all the bomb racks underneath, so the thing was going to be limited to about Mach 1.2 because of all the drag from these, uh, these bomb racks and all the rest of it. Sure. Anyway, we powered up, almost did this vertical departure. I'm looking over my shoulder at the ground receiving, saying, "Wow, I've never seen that before. That's really cool." And we popped up through a layer of cloud to about you know, 14,000 feet or so, and and uh, just headed off in a particular direction. And he said, well, hang on, I've got to check a few things out. So I just sat back quietly yeah. while he mumbled. And I, I don't know what he was checking out. I think he was setting me up slightly, actually. Yeah, yeah. Because after about 15, 20 minutes, the cloud underneath starts to break up, and it's a lovely sunny day down below, and I'm looking at a beautiful surf beach. And I thought to myself, there are no surf beaches in Thailand. <laughs> Ed... Where are we? So, oh, no, I thought I'd, I'd, I'd bring you up here and show you where we were bombing last night. <laughs> oh, really? I looked on a map afterwards. We're a place called Vin, I think it is. It's about uh, halfway or a third of the way between the demilitarized zone and Hanoi. A third of the way up to, yeah. up to North Vietnam. I'm over North Vietnam in the back on F4 uh, with no identification of the Australian flight suit, the whole bit. And I'm thinking, this is not good. This is not good at all. <laughs> and then it got better. We circled around. And it was always lovely surf beach. I can now see why tourists go to this place. It's yes. absolutely beautiful. Remind me of the coastline of North Australia. We circled around, we're about 14,000 feet, just cruising around at about 300 knots indicated because of all the drag of these things. Totally vulnerable, all by ourselves. No radar oversight, nothing like that. Just on a test flight. Yeah. And he's saying, oh, you see all the craters down there. There's, this, there's a river and a bridge. He said, we're trying to bomb that goddamn bridge and you can see craters <laughs> everywhere except the bridge. <laughs> so obviously they were missing. <clears throat> and I said, yeah, Ed, this is interesting. And he said, and you see those little craters? I'm maybe thinking they're dropping small bombs. I said, yeah. He said, well, they're not bombs. He said, they're AAA site. And I thought, oh, at the height we're at, there has to be a pretty small bore. He said, no, it's the 80 millimeter stuff. This is good about 40,000 feet. By now I'm feeling a little uneasy with all this. <laughs> we're circling. And he said, have you ever seen Flacknoll? I said, uh, no, Ed, I haven't. As a matter of fact, he said, hang on, we'll scare some up. And that's where I thought, this man is crazy. <laughs> and did, did I mention that was his nickname, Crazy Eddie? And now I know why. <laughs> so he rolled in and did a, a dive bomby type rockety pass right across the top of these flak sites. And as we go over, he dips the wheel and look, and there are people running to the guns. Wow. He basically said, somewhere in the middle of this, he said, oh, it's a night fight at the moment, so they're probably all sleeping. And sure enough, it was completely quiet. Yeah. But he was going to beat them up and then come back around again and make them shoot at us so I could see what flak looked like. At this point, sanity really kicked in with me. And I, I thought, how do I talk this guy out of this? This is just crazy. Yeah. And so I said, Ed, I don't, I don't care about your goddamn war. I, want, I came along to fly the F-4. Oh, he said, well, handing over. By now I figured out where Yvonne was, roughly south, and, and how to engage the afterburner. <laughs> so I took control of this thing. I slammed the throttle fully forward, plugged in the afterburners, and boom! Away we went. I got the hell out of there as quick as I could. After about five or six minutes, we punched back over this layer of cloud. He says, we're in a very laconic way. He said, oh, Noel, you better come out of burner now. We, we're kind of run out of gas if you don't. <laughs> Did a few barrel rolls and things on the way home and then came back and landed this thing. And that was my one flight over to North Vietnam as part of the war effort. Wow. And I thought, if I, we get shot, shot and I, I parachute down now, 
apart from you know vanishing off the face of the earth because no one knew we were there how do i explain this to the north vietnamese yeah, <laughs> Australian government would not be pleased, I'd be less pleased. So that was that was interesting. Yeah. We were <laughs> so, shortly after that we were banned from doing test flights in F fours because apparently I wasn't the only guy this happened to. You know, oh right. They will okay. take us and show us what they were doing last night, sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But that was quite interesting. But I mentioned uh, about breaking engines. We got into some fairly serious uh, air combat situations with these guys. Um, they used to get, you know, very serious about it, hard on. Yeah. And um, I damaged two F4s just in practice air combat. Okay. One of them, you know, they have the little canted wingtips on them, which for carrier used to, used to fold up. I had one guy do a rolling G reversal in front of me and shed a wingtip. Wow. Yeah. They fly quite well, apparently, without it, so he took it home and landed it. But the best one, I'm pulling, I must have been doing about 7G myself, so I was actually overstressing the saber, tracking this guy, and he suddenly hooked it hard to get away from me. And he did. He must have pulled about 8 or 9Gs. And the next thing he called me and said, ah, breaking it off, I got a problem. And uh, so I dropped down and sort of formated him. I, I could see um, one engine was working, the other one was pumping a lot of dirt, dirty stuff. And he said, I've lost an engine. And that was a very simple way of saying, lost an engine. What he'd actually done is he'd broken the engine mounts loose and the whole engine had dropped into the belly of the airframe. Oh! <laughs> anyway, he got it again, got it home, and the engine was sitting there on out of its engine mounts on the bottom. It could have sort of shredded itself completely, yeah. Wow. So that's how serious these guys were getting. And I'll, I'll come back to the reason why just shortly. Um, because we had uh, a lot of time to play with these guys. Sometime during this whole phase, uh, towards the, the latter stage of my eight months there, I managed to clock up my 1,000th hour in a Sabre. Right. Um, I'd actually, I knew it was coming, so I'd added up my log book and the rest of it. So we scheduled those. A, a purpose flight for Noel to get his thousandth hour. We actually timed the flight so I'd, I'd get it as I came back over in the four of us. So he had a formation fly past with me in the lead, exactly according to my logbook anyway, yeah. as I got a thousand hours on time. I got a photograph of that in my logbook. I think I stuck it on my Facebook page. At my Someone snapped a picture from below yeah. my 1,000th Sabre hour, <clears throat> which sounds like a big deal, but it wasn't. Every one of us had about that sort of experience. And this is the interesting thing. Um, yeah. I don't think any of the guys I was up there at that time had less than about 800 hours on time. Okay. So we were all quite experienced on our airplanes. Yes. As opposed to most of the F4 guys who were there with, you know, two, three, four hundred hours in the front seat and maybe only a hundred hours in the back seat. Okay. So the experience level was down. And this is another interesting thing that I learned, and people probably in this era of the world at least don't understand, there was quite a subtle, or not subtle, quite a big difference between the American approach to training their pilots and the British, America, Australian, probably New Zealand as well. Yeah. The Americans specialised. Um, you could be a strike pilot or an air interceptor pilot. Air interceptor pilots are the guys who flew the F-102s and they zoomed off under radar control and fired missiles at Russian bombers. Strike pilots are the guys we were with, with uh, uh, air-to-ground bombing. Right. Right. They didn't train air combat pilots as such. They weren't allowed to play with anyone else, or uh, you know, they could play with themselves, but there was no formal training. You were one or the other. You were an air okay. interceptor or you were a strike pilot. Right, okay. Those who were selected to do some sort of air combat thing actually went back and did a, a, a another course. Uh, that great movie, Top Gun, is yep. a classic example of this. I yep. mean, here we have Maverick, he's on a carrier, flying an F-14. He's sent back to do a, an air combat course, because right. his job and Goose and all those other characters, yeah. were to launch and, and, and go and intercept an inbound aircraft to the carrier and fire a missile, not to actually engage in dogfighting. Right. So they treated it as a separate sort of add-on thing later. 
Okay. Probably because they had a lot more aeroplanes, a lot more guys, they could specialise in it at an early stage. Australian Air Force didn't, so we had to do everything. Do everything so we yeah. got trained yeah. in air combat. So we were, were better trained in air combat than they were, as we, and also our aeroplane was more suited to us, more agile. So they were sort of in that regard, in, in close quarter air combat, were fighting with one arm behind their back straight yeah. away. Yeah. <clears throat> because it was just not conceived that they would need it anymore until they got to North Vietnam. And suddenly they're being intercepted by MiG-17s and MiG-21s and having a lot of losses to them. Right. Apart from the fact that, of course, they're carrying a huge bomb load and were not very manoeuvrable. Yeah. And the, the primary job of the MiG was to intercept them, make them jettison their bombs to defend themselves, and the MiG would turn and run away again. Right. Because you might have one MiG against eight F-4s. He wasn't actually out there to try and shoot anyone, just to make them jettison to defend themselves, and then they'd run away. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, mission accomplished. They can't drop their bombs on the target because they've all been jettisoned into the jungles of Laos somewhere. Right. Right. And that was happening a lot, so it was very frustrating for these guys uh, to do this uh, sort of thing. And they started to take a lot of uh, lot of hits, a lot of kills. We used to go and spend, oh, I, I spent a lot of time, we were invited any time we wanted to go to uh, their morning briefings and sit in on the, the morning briefings there. Yeah. The 8th TAC fighter wing commander at the time was a guy named Robin Olds, who was quite a famous character. Yes, he, yeah, indeed. There's a book about him he, uh, he wrote, and he was a a fighter race on Mustangs from World War Two. Right. He somehow skipped the Korean War but got back into this one. So he understood what was required and a lot of his drivers weren't trained enough, his aeroplane wasn't uh, up to it. And also they were being um, asked to trial new things, new missiles. I remember once uh, these dudes turned up with this new heat-seeking missile which you had to supercool the head by, by releasing some liquid oxygen into it a minute before you launched it and all this sort of stuff. Well, that's fine if you're going up to intercept a bomber, you know it's coming in. And he was railing against these guys saying, how the hell am I supposed to super cool this thing a minute before and I don't even know what I'm doing 30 seconds before and all yeah, this sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And he was getting really, really angry because they were losing airplanes and uh, and, and the, the, the whole mission parameters were such that they were no, so fighting with one arm by behind their back because of their training in the airplane and the other arm behind the back because of the constraints they're under. People don't realise. <coughs> Just north of Hanoi is a place called Kep Airfield, which was the primary fighter base out of North Vietnam. Yep. It had a sanctuary around it. You draw a circle, about a five mile circle around this thing, which is a sanctuary. It looked like a control zone, except they weren't allowed to go in there. They weren't allowed to strike the airbase. Okay. And I can remember sitting in a series of briefings over a few days where they used to send these RF-4Cs uh, over at high speed and take photographs. And here's a photograph of a Russian ship in Haiphong Harbour offloading large crates onto the wharf. Yep. The next photograph taken a few hours or half a day later, large crates on backs of trucks heading to Kep Airfield. Yep. Next photograph taken two days later, MiG-21s parked outside hangar, all brand new. Yep. These were MiGs being offloaded. They weren't allowed to touch them. And any one of those photographs could have been a bomber and taken them out. Yep. Weren't allowed to touch them. Yep. Two days later, a squadron of F-4s intercepted by two MiG-21s, two F-4s killed. And here's Robin Olds briefing these guys on how you're not supposed to go and hurt these guys. And I saw, we all started to feel what these guys are feeling, that the, from the political point of view, they were being sent out like lambs to the slaughter. It was crazy. Yeah. It was really, really crazy. Absolutely. And I think for the very first time in my life, I started thinking politically, like, what the hell is going on here? You know, we were okay. We were sort of on the fringes of the war. We never actually got involved in it. We were just playing with these guys. But here I can see these guys, many of which I've got to know, and many of whom I, you know, 
in the case of Eddie, I flew with once. And suddenly, I mean, Ed Collins didn't come back. About another month after I flew with him, he just vanished, didn't come back one night. Okay. And uh, I don't say I got to know any of them super well because they just kept going. And yeah, they lost a lot of airplanes. And so they started to set up uh, specific uh, flights over there with just F4s, with no bombs and so forth to try and take them out. And that worked. Yeah. Once they could go in there unarmed, or um, sorry, without bombs and all, and, and go straight for them, it was a different story. They, they could hold their own. But this is when things for us started to change too, and this is this is quite important. Um, one of our guys up there, his name was John Chesterfield. He was senior to me. He was a fighter combat instructor. I think he was our flight commander at the time. I can't remember how it came about, but he was obviously uh, had some conversation with Robin Olds in the bar because Robin Olds had been involved in these little fun things we used to do with each other. Yeah. And, 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 and Olds realised that we had a capable airplane. And he threw down this gauntlet, this challenge to John Chesterfield about, well, my F4 can outmaneuver your, your Sabre when I've got all the right gear. So they actually stripped down uh, an F4, took all the bomb racks off and so and put it into fighter mode. And he and John Chesterfield went up for a one-on-one, mano-a-mano, dogfight wow. overhead the field. And Chesty won. Sabre beat him. Okay. Yeah. Now, this is ostensibly was just a big you know, mano-a-mano type thing, but Robin Olds was smarter than that. He was testing the water to see just how good we were. Because he came to us about oh, a few days later with a proposition, which he'd already sent via the Pentagon, yeah. that the Australian Sabres be allowed to escort them over North Vietnam as fighter cover. Right. And he said, you guys, all you have to do is take these MiGs off our back for five minutes, 10 at the most. As soon as we drop our bombs, we can come back and join the fray. But we've got to get to the target without jettisoning. That's your job. Yeah. And we thought, wow, this is it. We're going to war. You know, This is what we're trained for. So our spirits are up and you know, morale was up. And so we started working out our combat radiuses. We could go all the way there with full ferry tanks right, and jettison them yeah. as we entered the Badlands. So now we had a complete clean airplane, but combat mode, and enough fuel to do 10 minutes with air combat and make it home to one of the northern airfields to refuel and finally come home. So logistically, it was all possible to do. Yeah. We just have to jettison these ferry tanks, you know. Who'd have thought that would have been a big hang-up? The bean counters in Australia said, oh, well, it's too expensive, you know, we can't drop tanks all the time. Yeah. And the Americans probably went back and said, you want tanks for sabres? We've got 10 cubic miles of them left over from Korea. How many do you want, you know? <laughs> um, so, for about a week, we thought we were going to do it. Uh, and I think we would have been reasonably successful. And I say this because... We've done a lot of our comparative analysis. The MiG-21 was like a Mirage, probably even worse, had very tiny wings. It was a point interceptor. Yeah. And, and even the Yanks said the, the ones they encountered never turned with them. They just ran in, ran out again. So they were using high-speed tactics. Yeah. The MiG-17, ostensibly on paper, was a very similar performance airplane to our Sabre. It was an uprated version of the 15 with the bigger engine and all the rest of it. Yeah. But skipping way ahead, like 20 years later, right, I came across a MiG-17 parked at Bankstown Airport. Right, right. You know, one of these war birdie type things someone was going to resurrect. Yeah. And I saw it there and I wandered over and said, wow, this is what you look like. I'd never seen my close-up before. And I, I spent half an hour and I crawled over it. I looked at the size of its ailerons versus the sabers, yeah. the size of its speed brakes. We could outroll it and outbreak it. The fact that it did not have an orb flying tail, a moving tail, which means it was only, it would be dodgy above Mach 0.9. I, I finally got to do a really detailed comparative analysis of this airplane. Yeah. And I walked away saying, I could eat you alive. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I didn't know that at the time, but yeah. we could have. We could have eaten them alive. Yeah. Uh, never got the chance because the Australian government came back and said, no, 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 this is not correct. Australia is only involved in the South and not the North. Yeah. You can't do it. Well, morale went way down. I mean, it really did. <clears throat> it dropped. And for about a week, we did some silly things. We really did. Our boss, for instance, and it started from the top down, I think, that's my excuse anyway, managed to blow over a couple of junks on the Mekong River, beating them up low-flying. Um, one of the other guys managed to brass up a local microwave tower and managed to misselect his uh, firing switch and actually fired some rear bullets into it and, and, and took Thailand's microwave link to the to the west offline for a month or so. He was a good, he was a good shot too, by the way. He yeah, took it yeah. out, no problem. He said, I didn't mean to. I thought I'd flick the switch the other way. Uh, myself and another guy decided we would visit the Angkor Wat in Cambodia. Not on. I actually misplotted where the Angkor Wat was. It was further. We never quite got there because having gone into Cambodia for about 15 minutes, I thought maybe we shouldn't really be here. Yeah. So we did a U-turn and came out. We were at low level, high speeds, and no one knew we were there. Except we happened to fly right across the top of a Thai border police post on the way back out again. Uh. And they were on parade. Oh, I thought, oops. <laughs> I mean, we got back that night, didn't say a word, because we were supposedly off on a, a low-level tactical navex somewhere. We just have to do a bit of a right-hand turn and go down to Cambodia. Yeah. And uh, in the bar that night, I'm uh, standing there talking with, uh, leaning against the bar, talking with, with someone, and the boss was about two, three people down with a big gap. And all of a sudden, our air defence officer comes blasting in, comes rushing up to the boss, waving this piece of paper, and says, sir, sir, Something's really happened. What's happened? Been reported two MiG-17s coming in from Cambodia last yeah, this afternoon. Yeah. And the boss would go, oh, oh shit, yeah, what's, what's going to happen here? And the safety and, the, and the, off, the, the, the ground defense officer then rushes out to do something or other. And I sidled over to the boss and I said, um, about those MiGs. And he paused and he looked at me and said, what have you done? So they weren't mixed, it was Terry and me. Oh. <laughs> so we kind of got in the shit, but everyone had done silly things like that. And the next day he got us all together and said, okay, enough. Yeah. I understand what your morale's like now, but we are not going to war. And maybe it's a good thing. Maybe we'll all be dead in a week's time. Got a lot of missiles up there, which we've got no defenses against. And that's true, they were firing missiles like shotgun pellets yeah. there. Yeah. So we weren't going to war. But the next part of this one, Robin Olds came back to me and he said, well, right, he said, if you can't go with us, you can train us. He put out a directive for all of his pilots to expect to be intercepted by uh, Australian sabres, and you are to defend yourself. Because sometimes, you know, we'd, we'd get vectored onto these F-4s coming back from the north, and they would not play it. Because yeah. you, know, you can imagine, these guys are probably pretty hassled, having just survived a real war. They don't want these kids you know, shooting them up, yeah. pretending. He said, no, you will. You will defend yourself as if they're real because it's good training and so forth. So we became the United States Air Force's first aggressor squadron. And not only were we using the two alert birds, but we'd also launch anything up to four of the other ones as well. Sometimes we were taking on 16 F-4s with four Sabres. And there were aeroplanes going every which way. And it was great fun, but it was serious fun. And then we'd debrief afterwards about who got who and why we got you and what you should have done. And... Um, Little by little, I think we, we sort of improved their ability, if not to shoot down the bad guy, at least to defend themselves and not be shot down by it whilst they did their job. And that was the whole aim of the thing. Yes. Yeah. So Colonel Robert Olds uh, understood his stuff and was looking after his men. And so we finally got invited to do this. And that became almost our primary function up there. It went way beyond the original aim of just becoming a 
sort of the defence of Thailand, we became this aggressor squadron. So we, every opportunity, we'd, we'd fight with these guys. Yeah. And and, and uh, you know, quite honestly, towards the end there, when I was there, they were getting better at it. In the early days, you could you could kill them easy because they didn't know what they're doing. Later on, they knew what how to do. They work in pairs and they defence the strategy and so forth and throw you off and spoof you and all. And yeah, they're good. So whilst I never got into the war. Yeah, probably it's a good thing, as the boss said, he said, we might, might not be having this conversation now. Exactly. And there's only half a dozen of us. How long can you last with half a dozen aeroplanes? But I like to think that my contribution was um, that I helped somehow save the lives of a few of those F-4 guys who were really fighting the war up there Yeah. Um, by helping them you know, fly the aeroplanes a bit better in that environment. Yeah. Right. Did, did you actually um, have one-on-one air combat with Robin Olds, personally? Personally, no, but he might have been in some of the formations we bounced because he was leading his troops all the time. Yeah. He wasn't sitting at home. And there are times, you know, we, uh, we, would, uh, we would bounce a, a formation of four aircraft and, and dogfight them for 10 minutes and then break off because they had to get home because they were running out of gas and we still had plenty of fuel, so we'd go and bounce the next four. Yeah. Because they used to go up there in waves of 30-odd aircraft at a time in groups of four. Yeah. Um, and here, I'm sure he was, he was amongst them. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's where he got this original idea that, hey, this is a different sort of aeroplane to these old F-86s, yeah. and we were capable. Um, and, yeah, and he used to talk about it all the time. So, yeah, quite often you wouldn't actually get to talk to the individual pilots. You'd have this general debrief of what happened to all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, and, and the number of aeroplanes involved there was quite spectacular. I just Again, a thought popped into my head. I remember I was out one day, just a pair of us, or two of us, anyway, we were just doing our own little air combat team between ourselves this particular day because it, was this, it might have been one of these big pushes over the north yeah. and so we were told to sort of stay away from that and so we, were, we started out doing our little dogfight thing at about 40,000 feet and as we sort of maneuvered and went down suddenly I see below me this um, KC-135 tanker with four F-4s hanging off it, yeah. refueling and then I look over to the left and there's another one, there's another one and as far as I look left and right there's a line of these things to the horizon wow. there must have been at least a dozen or 20 KC-135s, each with a f- formation of four F-4s hanging on. Because what they did was they'd, they'd hang on the tanker all the way to the ocean border, yeah. drop off, go do their things, and then come back, and the tankers would hang around in case they needed to retank to get home again. And we sort of barreled down through the middle of these and went, oops, sorry guys, and pulled away and got the hell out of their way. Uh, and that was quite spectacular. I don't think I've seen so many big airplanes so close together before. This is wall to wall, all going to war type stuff. Yeah. That's amazing. And it's quite spectacular, quite spectacular. Actually, just talking about that, just going back to the last um, episode, mm. I, I looked up uh, how the Lightnings got to Singapore and apparently they came out with um, 30 Victor tankers. Unbelievable. Air to air, isn't it amazing? Unbelievable. Such a crap little bloody cockpit. Yeah. yeah. Well, good, to, good for them. I mean, some people like flying long distances in little cockpits like that, I suppose. I wonder what the pilot shaped, shaped the pilot room when they got there. <laughs> yeah. Probably gone to bed for a week to recover from that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. So I mentioned before the videos, there was this particular guy um, on this video. I, I, I never met him. Um, well, I may have, but I don't remember him. Uh, but he was being interviewed about this whole thing, and he actually talks about. Um, our role up there, and he said, yeah, that's when they learnt uh, air combat training. He, he personally had never done any dissimilar air combat training at all. They'd done a little bit between themselves, Air Force. He said it was the Australian pilots up there that helped us, you know, really get our act together and so forth. Yeah. And he's the guy that said, yeah, because they had much hotter airplanes afterburners and all the rest of it, which... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I give you the lead for that too, because I'd heard from uh, another source, I, I, it's 
probably, I hope it's true, it, it sounds really good, I've never had the opportunity to verify it myself, but apparently in uh, Nellis Air Force Base in the United States, which is where they have their air, air combat range there, the Red Flag Range and all the rest of it, yeah. um, where the United States Air Force does its air combat training stuff, as opposed to the Miramar one for the Navy, yeah, yeah. as seen in the Top Gun movie. Yeah. And you go in there, of course, and like most of the American facility, has a big foyer and so forth with the flags and the, and the desk and the visitor's book, and there is a, a photo book there uh, of, of the squadron, their aggressor squadron, and apparently the lead photograph on the opening page is Australian Sabre, with a little caption, something like, this is where it all began. Wow. Yeah, yeah so that's pretty cool. That's pretty neat, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Now, I hope it's true. Um, someone said they'd actually saw it, and yeah. why not? I mean, yeah. we did, and it's verified as such. Um, of course, Robin Olds... Uh, went back to the United States shortly after this from reading his book and he was actually invited to go to the White House to discuss with Lyndon Johnson the way of ending this war yeah. and his answer was very simple, he said let's fight it <laughs> <laughs> because that was his philosophy he said they were fighting with one arm tied behind their back yeah. and these guys, I mean in the main they were, I mean, earlier on I talked about the 431st guys they may sound like the a little cowboyish, and Eddie Collins. Well, Ed Collins never came back, so maybe he was slightly crazy. But the majority of the guys that I met up there were very, very professional in their approach. You hear about the gung-ho Yanks. They weren't. They were professional. They had a job to do, and they did it. Uh, I remember one particular uh, thing that they had to do. When they were striking a particular target, they had it, one of their fours was a camera ship. And all the pilots got rotated to fly this camera ship, probably once in their tour at least, and it was called the Kamarakazi mission. <laughs> the deal was that this aeroplane had to dive on the target first and film it, yep. pull back away whilst a dozen F-4s bombed the bejesus out of it, and then you have to come back and film the result. Which means by the time he came back the second time, all the gunners on the ground had got basically the idea of the fall of the shot, and apparently they lost a few this way. Right. Hence the term Kamarakazi mission. And uh, I can recall one guy, who was a tall, blonde guy, who used to come and party with us regularly, and he got the Kamikaze thing. We never saw him for a week. Early to bed, early to rise, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and fit, because this was something really, really serious he had yeah. to do. Yeah. And a lot of the guys, I mean, we, we probably associated with 10 or 15% of the United States Air Force pilots. The ones who, shall we say, a little more relaxed about their job, maybe from experience or, or ignorance, I don't know. Yeah. And we had a good time with them, because at any given time, there's only 10 of us there, yeah. maximum. Yeah. Um, but the other, percentage, the vast majority, we hardly ever saw them, okay. except in the air, because they studiously did their job and didn't drink too much and didn't do anything else ridiculous, just tried to stay alive. Um, a couple of um, instances we had there, one of them which was I saw, which was most unfortunate. The standard thing was when you did your 100 missions over the north, you come back and beat up the airfield. Fairly traditional, no yeah. problem at all. And this was a, a night fighter guy. I don't know who he was, but he decided he was going to beat up the airfield when he came back at night for his 100th mission. It was a low overcast, about 3,000 foot overcast that night. And again, we're walking back from our open air movies, and suddenly this F-4 appears, and of course they, they beat up the Australian camp for some strange reason. They beat up the American camp. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe they are supposed to beat up the American. He came across our little camp at about 200 feet, doing warp speed in his F-4. And you could tell straight away, oh, this is a guy coming home for his last flight. Pulled up vertically and vanished into cloud. Okay. We mentioned he'd done a few vertical rolls or whatever, but he's in cloud. And you could hear the noise of this aeroplane going and going and going. Couldn't see it because of the cloud. And it felt like 10 minutes, probably all about 30 or 40 seconds, I suppose. And the next thing, about a mile to the, uh, 
to the north of the base, we see the, the lights and the afterburners of this thing still on, coming vertically out of cloud. Oh. At 3,000 feet, and went <coughs> straight in the ground, blew up. Wow. They both died on his 100th mission home. If it had been me, I would have done the most easy, straight-in approach ever, you know. Yeah, yeah. Because everyone was doing instrument approaches there all the time, because at certain periods of the year, they, all the locals are burning off their rice paddies and so forth, and you had this really, really thick haze that went up to about 10,000 feet. Yeah. So once you're above it, you're you know, in visual conditions, and you can look straight down and see the ground. But once you started doing an approach, looking obliquely through, it's like fog. Right, right. And there was a time there where every landing you made was off an instrument approach, because this fog was so bad. Okay. And uh, this guy decided he was going to do something different and killed himself. And we had a, a number of incidents there like that. Um, I remember watching a, an F-105 come into Ubon because he was badly shot. He had no nose. He was all blown away. And he was being escorted by one of the local F-4s who came back with him because he apparently was badly shot up somehow. Yeah. I don't know how he wound up where we were because their base was a little further over, I guess. But the interesting thing was this F-4 was on his wing and escorted him around uh, and the 105 managed to land okay and then the F-4 pulled up and away and both pilots ejected. Yeah. And you think, hey, what's going on here? Apparently the F-4 had a, was also hit in such a way that his undercarriage wasn't going to come down. So I thought, well, at least we'll do the right thing by the 105 guy and help him down. And once he was on the ground, they pulled away and punched out. Wow. Yeah. And you think, well, there you go. That's pretty brave, isn't it, to stay stay in yeah. there to get the other guy there? Well, they probably figured the airplane worked in the air, just wasn't going to work near the ground. Yeah, yeah. Um, but again, I suppose sometimes it's hard to distinguish between what is cavalier and what is so well trained that it appears cavalier. Mm. You know, these guys knew exactly what they were doing, what the airplanes go yeah. for. I remember sitting uh, on the alert status. We were bumped up to alert two for some reason. You know, little jets on the end of the runway, the side of the runway. Alert two means you're in the cockpit with everything humming. I think the only reason we were put to alert too is because there was this huge formation of, of F-4s departing to go and do their thing. I think there was about eight or ten of them. And uh, and we were going to watch straight after them to go and do whatever they want us to do. So I'm actually sitting in the cockpit listening on the radio. And uh, I remember it was Skunk Flight, they called themselves, Skunk Flight. And first pair had launched, and then the second pair launched, and started turning left off the end of the airfield, and I heard on the radio, uh, hey, lead, this is Skunk 3. I've had a number one hydraulics failure. And the response was, Roger, take it home. So you see this F4 detach himself from the formation and join the downwind leg to land. Hey, lead, I've just lost my number two hydraulics. Roger, see you in the bar. That was all it said. Boom! Yeah. Two ejection seats. He just lost both his hydraulic systems, so he just, they punched out. They literally landed 100 yards from the bar. My parents packed up their shoots and walked to the bar <laughs> and left their airplane out there somewhere. Yeah. And you're sitting there watching and saying, shit, that's cool. <laughs> I mean, there was no histrionics at all. Because yeah. what else could the leader or they do? He, he just happened to let them know before they punched out that this is the story. Everyone knew what the problem was. They knew what the solution was. Yeah. Bang, get out of there. Yeah. So it, in a way, it sounds gung-ho, but also it comes down to the fact that these guys knew exactly what to do and did it. And there's nothing else to be said about it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, so it's pretty cool. Well, so, I've got just a couple of questions about sure. about the actual base. Um, now you said you had six aircraft there, uh, six Sabres, mm -hmm. and was it about ten pilots or so? Eight pilots. Eight pilots, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so how many ground crew did you have with you? Oh, okay. Um, um, well, to maintain that many aircraft, we had, the, well, we had a lot of armourers there because we were hot the whole time. Oh, I'm kind of guessing we would have had about 20... 
25 ground troops there, engine, airframe, armors, all that sort of stuff support is. Yeah. So the actual flying operation side would be no more than about, what, 30, 40 people. Right, right. so you're really just sort of more of a flight than a, well, you're really oh, just a half flight. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But because we're so far away, then they have the support facilities. You know, they have to have cooks and bottle washers. Yeah. We have to have a priest there. Oh, yes, yeah. Um, You'd have an intelligence officer and that sort of thing. Well, yeah, there was the ground defence officer because they also had uh, their own air defence guards around our side of it. I mean, <laughs> we had all these sandbags for us, right? There was a little bunker, there was a sandbag around a base, and there was this huge wall of sandbags between us and the outside world, the outside street. Yeah. After this F4 blew up in the middle of the runway and showered our base with pieces of F4, okay? We moved a lot of the sandbags around between us and the Americans. <laughs> I mean, it was quite spectacular. This thing erupted. Apparently, one of the bomb racks went hurtling through the sky and came down through the roof in the hospital into the doctor's quarters. Ooh. Now, the doctor had gone to bed early. He had medical answering question. Yeah. And he, so he's sound asleep, but he hears this absolutely ear-splitting bang. And subconsciously, being a doctor, thinks... Loud bang, someone's hurt, need a doctor, and whilst he's still half asleep, rolled out of bed to start putting his pants on when a bomb carrier came through the roof and buried itself in his bed. Wow. Yeah. Two or three seconds later, he would have been buried with it. Yeah. I sort of looked around and went, oh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, There was no one hurt, but there was pieces raining everywhere. So, yeah, so we put the sandbag between us and the American camp up to protect ourselves from exploding a forward. And they had... uh, um, a few, shall we say, scares. Some of our air defence guards, one not one morning, found a mortar gun set up about half a mile outside the perimeter, just there, sitting there, yeah. unattended, like someone had set up intending to fire some mortars into the base, but then was scared away by something. We yes. don't know what. Yeah. So of course it all got very tense. Then I remember sleeping one night with a nine millimeter pistol under my, under my, my pillow, yeah. <laughs> just in case we got invaded. But again, remember I talked about when we were up in Darwin, they asked us if we could do some night work. Well, the same thing reared its ugly head again there. Um, apparently, this radar station, the Lion radar station, of course, Lion was the call sign, had detected some low-level um, activity at night, and they suspect were helicopters coming over from the Laosian side of things. And it was hard to tell because a lot of American activity. We had, a, for a little while there, a T-28 squadron. Uh, base there, all black used to go out and shoot up trucks on the Ho Chi Minh Trail in the dark. Oh, right. With no lights, no nothing, looking for tail lights, for God's sake. Yeah. And shooting them in the dark. Dodgy stuff. Dodgy stuff. Oh. Anyway, um, they then decided that a couple of these low level paints they were getting were not part of that. And they figured that there were some helicopters coming in and dropping off some troops who were going to fire mortars into the American side of things. So they immediately went to the Thais, because the Thais had a squadron of T 28s there too. I hardly flew them and said, well, you know. You guys have got the right sort of airplanes to this. Would you like to fly a night cap and keep these helicopters away? And the tires immediately said, oh, no, 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 we don't do that sort of thing. <laughs> so the next thing they came to us and said, do you guys think you could do it? We went, uh, how do you suggest we do this in the dark? We're a day fighter. Yeah. And they had these two or three Cameron Husky helicopters there, the big intermeshing rotors, yes. which um, they had uh, flares on board for night rescue purposes. And they said, well, we can load up one of these as a flare ship and drop flares in the vicinity of the radar paint. We should give you enough um, light to see it and maybe shoot it. Yeah. So we said, well, you know, sounds all right on paper. We need to give this a trial. So we had a trial one night. Four of us actually flew in this trial. 
and they had one Cameron helicopter pretended he was the bad guy flying along, and the other one they were coming over the top of him and dropped these huge flares. I mean, we're talking two million candle power parachute flares, really, really bright stuff. And then we would see the, the defending helicopter and dive into this ball of light and shoot him. Well, that point was easy. Sure enough, there he was, yeah, down the hill. Of course, you, when you dive into this brick, I mean, it's, it's brighter than sunlight. Yeah. And of course, the old eyeballs tend to uh, you know, yeah. tone right down. And so you, you ostensibly shoot at the helicopter and then you pull off straight into inky blackness with eyeballs which have already shut down. Yes, yes. Man, you can hardly see the instrument panel. You know? And uh, it was very disorientating. So again, we said, yeah, it's possible, but let's not practice this anymore <laughs> because yeah, it could get really dodgy. Yeah. Um, so having found this mortar gun though, they then increased the patrols around the outside of the airfield and it never happened again. Okay. It never happened. So we never got a chance to actually shoot a helicopter in the dark and maybe fly into the ground. Because again, uh, it's a bit, it's a bit unlike night flying um, here where you've got these huge clusters of lights like Hamilton or Auckland, places like that. Yeah. There were no huge clusters, even the little hamlet of Eubon was just this little twinkling of lights. Because they didn't have, a lot of these little villages didn't have electricity. Right. They still had campfires and things. Yes, yeah. And I had a fairly dodgy experience myself because we did a little bit of night flying up there. We tried to keep a hand into the dark just to, because we have to. Yeah. And I was flying on the on the wing of another guy. We went up to do a some sort of a night thing. I can't remember what it was, but again, it was during this period where it was really, really hazy. So we had to do an instrument approach. Yeah. So we decided that we'd practice our individual instrument approaches. So we did whatever we had to do in the dark, and then we'd split and do individual letdowns and approaches. And it was a brilliant starry night, no moon, but also beneath us was an equal number of what appeared to be stars, which was just the little random lights of towns or villages or yeah. houses and so forth. So there was no clear delineation between big splotches of light is down and little twinkly lights is up. Yeah. It was just a complete bowl of twinkly lights. And I experienced probably the worst disorientation uh, I've ever had in my life that night. And of course, I knew exactly what it was when it happened, but it was too late, you don't think about it. It's a thing called a Coriolis illusion. And it involves uh, when you're pitching and rolling in one direction and then move your head in an opposite plane and the inner ear gets completely confused right. and goes boing. Okay, we had it simulated to us once when we were in training by spinning around on a chair and with blindfold on and then trying to bend over whilst you're spinning and you usually fall off the chair in a screaming hit. Yes. Yeah. I was on the wing of, of my glorious leader on this particular night and uh, the Sabre had uh, navigation lights. You could select either bright or dim. Dim was for formation work, so you didn't dazzle the guy. And bright was when you're by yourself. And so we're tracking into a 20,000 foot overhead and he just said, okay, you know, take your space. You can do what I just do a complete gentle 360 degree turn break one turn, two minutes I'd be behind him and then I'm down. And so I just started to roll away from him and transition and look inside at my instruments and it was this bright flash of light off my left wing, which was him turning his nav lights onto bright. Right. And, but in that microsecond before thinking, I flicked my head to the left to say, what was that? Realising I was, I flicked my head back in again. So I'm rolling and turning right and I flick my head to the left and back in again and boing, my inner ear just toppled. And from that point on until half mile finals, I believed I was inverted. Completely upside down. Uh, oh God. It's the most constant, I think it's the most concentration I've ever had in my life. Yeah, I knew what it was straight away. Yeah. And the instruments were working and I just had to focus on the instruments and believe them throughout the entire goddamn letdown. All the way till about half mile finals, I believed that I was completely inverted. I was flying this airplane upside down. Wow. 
and I've got to tell you, the sweat was pouring off my head. I'm squeezing the stick so hard, I think the all the bomb buttons were really popped out the top. <laughs> and about from about a mile or two out, I'm taking little glances out the windscreen to see if I can see the run. Not yet, not yet. Keep yeah. focus, keep focus. And finally, the runway came to view, and boy, it was all clear again. Wow. Once the visual impact took over and I landed, I don't remember touching down. I don't remember landing at all. It was just like, oh, I yeah. made it. Yeah. <laughs> And that was oh, so scary. It was very stressful. But, you know, again, uh, we, we were trained properly. I knew what it was. I knew what I had to do. And so you just had to do it because the option was crashing. Yeah, so yeah. you didn't yeah. do that. Exactly. So yeah, we're probably way off the, your question again now. Aren't we? <laughs> I can't remember what the question was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. We were just talking about uh, the actual base itself. And uh, what I was wondering is, you, 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 and just then you mentioned several different squadrons that were at the base. So mm. there must have been quite a few people on the base oh, itself, yeah. Well, all the Americans we're talking about our side. On the American side, it was huge. Yeah, I mean they had three operational squadrons and support units there, twenty-four hour kitchens. They must have had a thousand people there. Right. right. And they don't go anywhere. They go in style. They do look after their troops. I yes. must admit, when these guys were on the ground, they had all the best facilities, and that's why we used to spend a lot of time over there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they really did. Fair yeah. But from the outside, though, there's all these huge tin huts. But then you walk inside, and it was like being in Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah, it really was. Uh, so we had this regular interchange. There's a lot of the Yankees like coming to our side because it was so quaint. <laughs> we go over there because of all the spark guys. Of course, they had the big officers club there, uh, 24-hour bar. All the, the most attractive Thai bar girls you could ever find. Oh, to die for type attractive girls there. Yeah, they looked after their guys. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But they had lots and lots of people there. Lots and lots of people. Okay. Okay, and obviously the um, because of the secrecy of you being there, and you didn't didn't want Malaya to. No, we weren't Malaya. secret. The fact we were there wasn't secret. This is how we got there. Was the oh right, okay. <laughs> so the people of Australia must have known you were there. You could write home about it, and oh yeah, yeah. you just didn't talk about how you got there. Yeah. You know, hi, I'm in Newbon, and hi, I'm back in Butterworth, and no one even mentioned how you got there. Yeah, you know, yeah. It was just this silly little cross-border thing going on. Yeah, we were quite legitimately there. 79 Squadron was a completely separate squadron, completely independent from anything going on in Malaya. That's the way yeah. the story went uh, from the door. <laughs> I wonder when it was that the Malaysians actually found out that this was happening. I honestly don't know if they ever did. <laughs> if they listened to this. <laughs> oh, that's right, yeah. Yes, you're about to find yeah. out. <laughs> well, it all kind of wound down. I mean, the last couple of trips I did to Ubon, um, Three Squadron had already gone home, as I mentioned. They were replaced by Mirage. Mirage never went up there. That was, that was pretty pointless, them yeah, going there. Yeah. Uh, they couldn't do what we were doing because we'd really come down to this um, aggressor squadron type role up there then. Um, so there was just 77 Squadron supporting it. So it means from just one squadron supporting another half squadron. We were bolted, obviously, by extra airplanes and crew. Yeah. Um, but then after I left, the whole thing, I think about 12 or 18 months after I left from there, um, the whole thing wound down. And as I say, I can't remember quite sure how they swapped over once, because two squadron then moved to to South Vietnam and did their thing, the Canberra squadron. Right. And uh, I suppose if I'd done some homework, I could have found out, but you know, this is just what I can recall. Um, obviously it was sorted out, but it got to the point where you know, the Sabre was being replaced by the Mirage. And so there was no good trying to maintain six Sabres in far-flung reaches of Thailand when everything else had been changed back home. Yeah. So 77 Squadron was also replaced and came home and and wound up going back up there again with Mirage. Right? Um, 
and getting one Sabre back, which is a whole different story. The Sabre in, in, um, in Tamora right now actually was a 77 squadron aircraft, not a 75 squadron aircraft as it was uh, as painted in now. Right, right. There's a back story behind where that aeroplane came from. But I'll, I'll cover that when we talk about something in the future. Okay, okay, yeah. Um, yeah, so it, again, I, I think I mentioned, you, you get fo so focused on your own career and where you're going that you, once, you, once you're out of the area, you don't even worry about how, how it went on after that. So yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But I, I do recall uh, making some glib comment about our, all, the, all the ground pounders there, as we used to call them, so involved in what they're doing that if we all packed up and left tomorrow, they wouldn't notice we were gone for several months. Well, as it turned out, that's exactly what it was. When they finally stopped sending Sabres up there, it took them another four months to actually wind down the support facilities in the airfield there. Oh, wow. And they gave it all back to the ties and so forth and came home. Yeah. Okay. Um, just looking at my notes here, if there's anything that I've missed, we've probably dragged on forever again, haven't we? Well, just a question from uh, that comes in after the last episode was uh, your mention of the all flying tail on the Hunter, was it you were talking about, mm. I think? Um, and you, you happened to just say that you think that they got that from the Sabre. But uh, the question's come in from uh, Steve uh, Hortney. Um, he has um, suggested that the Sabre designers got that from the Miles M52, the British design. So what do you say to that? I don't even know what a Miles M52 is, quite frankly. Well, if, if you look at the Miles M52, it was pretty much the prototype of what the Bell X1 became because it was a, the supersonic project that was designed oh. by Miles um, during the war. They started the design work, but it got cancelled. Um, no, well, look, I, I, my, my comment about the Hunter is probably a, a bit glib. They may have come to it all by themselves, but it's interesting that they owned 300 Sabres before the first uh, Hunter flew. Yes. So you can't tell me that they didn't at least know that they're on the right track. They may have reinvented it themselves, but with 300 Sabres parked out there, they would have thought, well, that one works, so ours must too. Yeah. Um, so they can probably claim a certain independence of it. The original uh, XP-86 Sabre did not have an all-flying tail as such. The, the, the horizontal stabilizer was trimmable in flight. Yep. Okay. And then the uh, elevator moved as an independent thing. It was quickly discovered that the best way to, to control it was to have the whole thing move. In fact, the, the Sabre's tail wasn't a slab like you see on most modern jet fighters. It was actually a moving stabilizer and elevator, so it actually changed its camber. Oh, right. As you pull the stick back, the leading edge of the stabiliser went down, the trailing edge of the elevator went up more. So you had this slightly variable cambered section as well. Yep. Now that was integrated into the operational aeroplanes because it was discovered in the early supersonic flights that you need to actually work the trim. Because the, the centre of, of, of lift of, uh, of the, the wing goes from 25% back to 50% as you go supersonic. So it changes the whole trim of the aeroplane. So you've got to compensate for this with a, quite a large stabiliser adjustment. As far as I know, it was the North American people who discovered this unilaterally, as they did the swept wing, I won't say they discovered it, uh, created it. Um, the Germans invented the swept wing technology, if you like, which the North American copied and improved on, as I think I mentioned this way yep. back there. Yep. The ME262 had only about a 20 odd degree sweep back, whereas the Sabre was the optimum 30 or 35 degrees. But the ME262 didn't have a flying or flying tail. It wasn't conceived that it would be transonic anyway. Right. The X1 did not have a trimmable stabilizer in flight. It could be trimmed on the ground and adjusted on the ground. Okay. But those early X1 flights that Jaeger um, did, and if you watch that great, terrible movie called The Right Stuff, he didn't just hop in it and take a supersonic on one flight. Oh, no. 
Yeah. And a lot of people had spent a lot of time flying the airplane before him, and he spent many flights before doing it. Yeah. And his big problem was that he was running out of control as he was getting past about Mach 0.85 to 9, something like that. Uh, Jack Ridley, his, um, his engineer, actually cottoned on to the idea of adjusting, of, of rearranging the, the, the controller so he could adjust the stabiliser in flight, ah, okay. uh, which enabled him to do it the same as they did on the Sabre. Now, this is very controversial, it's interesting to note that about the time that uh, he was doing this with the X-1, just down the ramp at Muroc Air Base was the XP-86 Sabre, yep. which already had an adjustable tail and tight. And these guys used to talk to each other. They go to Pancho Happy Bottom Riding School over the side to the bar, and you can bet they chatted with each other about who had a moving stabilizer and who didn't, because all of a sudden the X1 started having a movable a cockpit control for moving stabilizer. Yes, yes. Now there'll be a thousand people that say, "Oh no, no, it was all highly secret. That would never happen." But having been involved in, shall we say? Aeroplane engineering and, and, and military and so forth, there's a lot of back chat goes on, a lot of ideas. As I said, most of the conversations we had in our debriefings in Ubon were in the bar. Yeah. There weren't any formal debriefing in front of a whiteboard in a classroom. Oh, no, no, it was all in the bar. <laughs> Some serious air combat was flown in the bar. And the same sort of thing I'm sure happened at Muroc Air Base back in the 40s, 47, when these two were vying to be who, who, who would be first to, to take an airplane supersonic. Yep. And the Sabre won, by the way, if I hadn't mentioned that before. Sabre <laughs> supersonic several weeks before the X1. Yes, yeah, yeah. Different story. I don't know if that's the direct answer to the question, but I don't think North American even heard of the Miles, quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know myself, but that's what people have said that the Miles M52 was um, was cancelled and the, the all the design drawings was passed over to the North American people. Passed to North American or passed to Bell? They didn't talk uh, to each other. Well, I'm not, I'm not, are, I'm not sure. Uh, when I say, I meant actual USA, yeah, not, not, not the company. Know, but and these are companies which are in serious competition with each other. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So from that point of view, as I say, the, the, the chat in the bar with the two airplanes already in existence, that's one thing. But when you share your development work, because they were all trying to steal a march. North yeah. America stole a march and everyone else because they were the first swept wing transonic fighter uh, in the American inventory. And it was extremely good and extremely popular. They sold thousands of things. Right. I don't know if I've mentioned this point back in America. Back in the in the early fifties, around the Korean War thing, era, there, the United States Air Force alone had six thousand sabers okay. in squadrons or dotted all around the world. Wow, that's a lot. Never before or since has any military force, air force at least, had that many of the same type airplanes in operational service. Yes, there were six thousand B seventeen bombers built during World War Two, but they weren't all existing at the same time. Right. The builds were replacing the ones been blown out of the sky. But yeah. at one time, I don't know what year, 50-something or other, there existed at the same time 6,000 of these things just in the United yeah. States Air Force Service. Very, very popular, very, very good airplane. Oh, yeah. You, you, you don't get that to be that well widely used if it was not that good. Yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, another two um, questions that I actually have been meaning to ask you for the last couple of episodes, just quick questions. Um, one, the Sabre, when you landed, did it have a um, drag chute? No. No. Now, that was one of the tricks with the Sabre, is you didn't have a drag chute. It probably should have had one. And it didn't have anti-skid devices on the brakes either, which means it was very easy to blow a tyre if you are a bit club-footed. Right. Particularly on a wet runway. So we had developed a thing called aerodynamic braking, where you literally stall the wing on the ground after touchdown, which yeah. was a bit tricky to do. But it was a technique of flipping the flaps up, raising those, and flipping the flaps down again to keep it on the ground while it stalled. 
because you couldn't even touch the brakes until you're down to at least 90 knots in a wet runway because it would aquaplane. Right. So we had to use at least an 8,000 foot runway and quite often, quite often on a wet runway there'd be an aircraft into the arrest of barrier off the end of the runway, not damaged, They'd probably be down to 20 or 30 knots and sliding and there's no way you're going to stop. Yep. And this big fishnet would catch them off the end. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, now, probably one of its, its biggest defects was its, its stoppability. It should have had anti-skid devices on the, on the wheels. Never developed them. Even the Vampire had them. So it was a, that's a problem. Right, right. And the other question which um, came up through a discussion that we um, had on the forum is, are you aware of, apart from... Uh, uh, Vance Drummond, who was um, uh, probably a little bit before your time. Oh, I, I, he, was, uh, I, he was a squadron commander when I was first getting there. Yeah, he shot down a MiG with a Meteor. Okay, yes, that's mm. the one, yeah. Mm. Um, uh, are you aware of any other Kiwis who flew the um, RAAF Sabres? Apart from yourself and him? Oh, I, I didn't even know I was a Kiwi. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, no, yeah. There may have been, but I don't know. Yeah. We never talked about it. I mean, as I said, I, I was quite surprised when I discovered I was. I, <laughs> yeah. I've been flying operationally for two years. <laughs> <laughs> there quite probably was. Um, you know, apart from all of this, the hoo-ha, the, 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 the rivalry between our footy teams and so forth, at, at the coalface, the Australians and New Zealanders treat each other as the same. Exactly. Really. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's not even even if you're from England, you're 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 a bit out of it. Uh, New Zealand, no, no, welcome aboard. Yeah, yeah. So there probably was heaps of them. Yeah. I know that when they canned the uh, the A4s here, most of the pilots went straight to Australia. Exactly. And yeah. flew whatever F18s and F-18s, so forth. Yeah. It was just not a problem. Yeah. You know, maybe a lot of New Zealanders and listeners don't realise that back in 1901, New Zealand could have been another state of Australia, when Australia federated all their states together and invited New Zealand to be part of it. Yeah. yeah. There are some people who think they should have. Yes. Other people nowadays are saying, oh, no, no, we could never do that. Yeah. It would be the same rivalry in our football teams. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that rivalry is part of our culture. Yeah, I mean, the, the Anzac thing is not just a word. At the coalface, um, it, it's, it's a reality. Yeah, yeah. We're all the same. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, no, I was just wondering, uh, you know, if you had come across anyone that you knew but. Probably. In fact, I didn't even know Vance Drummond was in New Zealand, quite frankly. Was that right? Until you just mentioned it. <laughs> yeah, that. okay. Yeah. Yeah, all right. So there probably was a, a large number, yeah. yeah. I don't know. And maybe from time to time someone mentioned it, but it just didn't matter. Yeah, it just didn't yeah matter. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs> well, then what I should really simply say is that after my last flight up there, which was in uh, 17th of October 1967, I uh, came back to 77 Squadron. I was only there for uh, about another six weeks when I got a posting home. Right. I had been agitating or putting a preference to go to a fighter combat instructor's course, yeah. um, which I wasn't posted to at that stage because they only held them once every two years and I was kind of out of step. Yeah. So I was sent home to do a job which uh, I hadn't even didn't even know existed, but it turned out to be one of the most challenging jobs I've ever done. Okay. Now that, boom probably the subject of the next talk. Okay, <laughs> well, we'll come back to that uh, next time. Next yeah. time. Well, thank you very much, Noel. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.